Welcome to the Pink Tax Podcast, a no-nonsense podcast for millennial women, building wealth and smashing the patriarchy, one dollar at a time, with your hosts, Janine and Tara. Tara. Hi, Janine. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I'm really excited this week. I've done a ton of research on the topic of psychology and money. Yeah, I'm super excited to dig into this. So to get started, I wanted to ask you a couple questions around what you think about money when it comes to Mm self-worth and also stress. Yeah. Oh, those are really good questions. So, uh, self-worth, I think it can kind of go two ways when you're not, um, when you're kind of avoiding things because you don't want money to be attached to your self-worth. That's not great because that's to an extreme. Um, but when you tie your self-worth too much to money to like any external factor, I think you're on the way for some trouble for sure. It's a slippery slope. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And I think, we see sometimes in the media um, this notion of materialism mm-hmm. and you know purchasing really expensive things, and I wonder sometimes if that you know that is people in a sense tying their self worth to things which are bought yeah. with money. Yeah, definitely, and it's that short term gratification, that short term burst of increased feeling of self worth until you find somebody who has something nicer. Do you think you would have a higher self worth if you? I guess we haven't really talked about what our specific net worths are, but if you, let's say you had a million dollar net worth, would you feel better about yourself? No, I think there's definitely like a bottom line though. And I think that's where the stress comes from as well, because I think there's an amount where you can't meet your basic needs. So then it becomes very difficult to separate your self-worth from that. Yeah. Like people who are working minimum wage and can't afford mm-hmm. rent, for example. Yeah. I feel like you would probably feel fairly terrible if you couldn't provide for let's say a kid you know all the necessary bills and stuff yeah and then you have the judgment of other people who are seeing you going to the food bank perhaps or not being able to pay your bills or knowing that your water is getting shut off or what have you right like there's that sort of judgment as well not only self-judgment it's very hard on the stress piece have you ever been really stressed about money like we're all like a little bit stressed Mm -hmm. about money sometimes like we probably you know throw something on our credit card maybe we shouldn't have but I'm wondering if there was ever a point in your life where you were really stressed about money not really stressed and I think this gets into the psychology of money too like I grew up with a lot of stress around money family accidents and illness and things changed very quickly but even when my husband took time off and started his own business and even when we were floating on my income, we had already planned our expenses to be fine with that. And our savings were enough of a safety net that it was okay. We knew when the stop point was, but I could see if it weren't a choice, if you didn't have savings, it would be very stressful. Yeah. I think when people grow up in households where money is a stressor, or it's always talked about that, you know, we don't have enough money, Mm -hmm. I think that can be projected onto the children in those situations. Oh, for sure. And just to know what it's like to not have a safety net or to have burnt through your safety net for um, situations that are outside of your control. Yeah, 
seeing that side of it, definitely I've seen how stressful money can be. Do you think growing up there was more of a scarcity mindset around money? Well, money was scarce for a, a big portion of my life. Money was very scarce and then it was abundant. So it was kind of, we had enough, then we didn't have enough at all. And then we had enough again. And it created sort of a, not just scarcity, but then when money was available, it created an instant, instant gratification loop as well. That's really interesting. I think stress in how money works in our society is very, very prevalent. I think a lot of people are obviously well um, extended beyond their means and that causes them the stress of you know not being able to pay their bills or mm-hmm. being in a job that they hate and not being able to quit because they have a mortgage payment or what mm-hmm. have you. Like they don't have that flexibility because yeah. that money safety net in a sense hasn't been set up. Or it's been exhausted or you were unable to build one up to begin with too. I spent a lot of time actually this afternoon t- taking a look at psychology and money and I came across money disorders. So I thought it'd be interesting to chat about um, different types of money disorders. So there's actually a few which I was surprised to learn. There's three types of money disorders. There's money avoidance disorders, money worshiping disorders, and uh, relational money disorders. So I thought I'd take a minute here to explain what they all are, and then maybe we can jump in. So we'll start with money avoidance disorders. This is underspending and excessive risk aversion. So there's two types. Mm -hmm. There's financial denial, which is they really don't want to face the reality of money. They minimize their money problems by simply just ignoring them altogether. Mm -hmm. And then there's financial rejection, which is guilt when any amount of money is accrued. They feel like they don't deserve to have that type of money. So I'm curious if you've ever experienced any of these or seen friends or family members or what your general sense of the, this, you know, avoidance disorder is. Um, well, I think off the bat, I think I can definitely relate more to the first type of avoidance where you kind of feel like burying your head in the sand. If you get a little too overwhelmed, it can be really overwhelming, especially if I imagine if you've racked up a bunch of debt or that kind of thing. I could see if I were in that situation, definitely getting involved in that avoidance trap. The second one, though, not thinking that you deserve what you've earned is very strange to me. Yeah, I hadn't come across that before, and um, I'm sure it goes hand in hand with a lot of other you know, thoughts around self-worth, but it was interesting to me that these individuals don't feel like they deserve to have any amount of money and maybe that's because mm-hmm. of how they were brought up they don't believe that they should have any amount of savings because it was so scarce growing up there's a side of that i guess i could see if you are the most affluent person in your family and you did grow up with less maybe you want to share and get other members of your family in that so you don't think that you deserve to have it necessarily but i would hope that those individuals are taking care of themselves as well well i think that's part of it is it's seemed like when I was doing the research is it's kind of like at the detriment to them yeah that's not great no no absolutely not not. and I mean going back to the financial denial piece I've seen so many individuals kind of take this approach they just don't want to deal with it yeah yeah I feel like I've seen that a lot and I mean I can see that in myself and other things I mean everybody's had a time in their life where they've procrastinated on something I imagine if money got overwhelming enough for me I would 
but yeah, they're not deserving it. I feel like so many people are the opposite. So many people, they inherently believe that they deserve more than they worked for, more than they worked for or what they inherited or that kind of thing. And then they look, you know, at another person who has less differently. I feel like we have a lot of that in our society. For sure. This one I think is, I would guess I have no you know, research to back this up, but I would assume the second one is more rare and it is probably more so in like a family mm-hmm. situation where it's like you have money and no one else in your family does. And so you feel mm-hmm. guilty mm-hmm. that you've maybe, you know, made a name for yourself or something, or maybe there's people in your household that are making you feel guilty. Yeah. Or maybe supporting your kids, like not saving for your retirement. I mean, that's probably be like a very small, like minuscule side of this personality disorder or money management disorder um but yeah not saving for your own retirement because you want to spoil your children yeah I mean I would definitely recommend that if you have some of those thoughts where you feel like you don't deserve what money you've earned it would probably be time to speak to a a professional around um, Mm -hmm. maybe psychology and Um, self-compassion. Obviously, Tara and I are not psychologists, but (laughs) um, the first one I think is a little bit easier to handle because it's just more of an education standpoint as opposed to actually just not really believing that you're you're worth it. And to anyone listening that is maybe feeling like that, you you definitely deserve all the money that you make. And you should take care of it and take care of yourself. Yeah. So the next type of money, I guess, disorder, they called it disorders, but I feel like these are kind of just the ways people approach money, is money worshipping. So this is linked to pathological gambling, workaholism, and overspending. So there are two types. There are hoarding, which is obviously stockpiling money to provide safety and security, Mm -hmm. and there's compulsive buying, which is obviously overspending, and providing relief from anxiety, actually, by spending because there's a bit of a dopamine release. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced any of these? I think we probably have all done a bit of overspending. I would say that for myself, yeah. I might have a little bit of money hoarding tendencies sometimes. Yeah. But uh, curious as to what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, I think I would probably lean towards more the money hoarding than the money spending, I would think. But it can definitely go both ways. I think these are both relatable disorders, yeah. And I think when they talk about overspending, it's probably, you know, not splurging at Sephora once every couple months. It's probably perpetual overspending to the point of, you know, running your bank account dry. Or only feeling, again, I think a lot of money comes back to self-worth, like only feeling worthy if I have that, you know, expensive pair of shoes or that designer bag or, you know, whatever. Or that spending money or shopping is your activity. Mm-hmm. So you feel the need rather than window shopping or looking for something that you need and just enjoying a day online or at the mall. You're actually feeling the compulsive urge to take out your credit card and spend, spend, spend. And then not even care about the purchases necessarily afterwards. Yeah, and, and one of the things I learned early on in personal finance was marketers are actually quite good at what they do. Um, Mm -hmm. So when you are wanting to kind of impulse spend, you know, leaving it at the store or putting it on hold or putting it in your Mm -hmm. basket online and closing the window tab for 24 to 48 hours, probably 95% of the time you'll find you don't actually 
end up wanting it or remembering it was even there. Like I would find when I started implementing this, I feel like online shopping maybe wasn't as big of a thing as as it is Mm -hmm. now, but I would find by the time I walked to my car, I have completely forgotten about the purchase. And I always thought this was like too much of a planner. So even when malls were a thing, I would plan my trip around the mall. Which store was I going to? What did I need from each store? And I think it's strange to me when I look at society and I mean, I was the same, like the fact that shopping is like a hobby to me is shocking. And I mean, I, when I was 13, you know, to 20 or whatever, it was a hobby. Like it was like, Oh, I'm going to the mall Mm. with friends just because, and you would Mm -hmm. end up spending all this unnecessary money, which is so funny because now my husband and I literally loathe going to the mall. Like we avoid it like the plague. And But I feel like so many people in our society use shopping as a hobby. Yeah. Well, maybe it comes back to, I don't know, family of origin and and family history as well. But I didn't really overspend when I was with friends going to the mall shopping, that kind of thing. Like I was always a window shopper and other people would buy, but I wouldn't. Why do you think that was? Because I didn't have as much money. Um, And then when I earned money... I knew the value of keeping it safe and keeping it in the bank. Yeah, and I feel like the compulsive buying, I probably fell into this when I was younger, but like, you know, wanting to be able to buy things to kind of, in a sense, prove you have that status. I think Mm. getting your own job and, you know, being able to buy that pair of jeans that your mom or dad said, like, no, we're not buying that for you. You have Mm -hmm. lots of jeans at home because we've all been told that. I think that was kind of like, for me, maybe a bit empowering. Yeah. But then again, I feel like it was the opposite because my parents, when they were able to buy us stuff, they did. And I was the one that said, I have enough. That's really interesting. And, you know, one of the other things I wanted to bring up with the psychology of money is actually around the pain of payment. And this is uh, something that I've kind of dug into over the years and I think about frequently but as we've moved to a more cashless society, the mm-hmm. pain of actually paying for something, that's a lot of peas, um, mm-hmm. has gone down. So think about when you were in junior high, and I don't know about you, but when I went to the mall, I actually physically had cash in my wallet. Oh. So if I had $100, it was, you know, 520s. I had to do that math in my head really mm-hmm. quick. But so to buy something, I had to physically part with that $40. So I had to physically take it out of my wallet and hand it over to the store clerk, which is the most painful type of payment. You can physically feel it, you know, leaving Hmm. you. As we've moved to debit cards, you know, you you put in your pin, the money automatically leaves your account um, Mm. in an instant, right? When you pay credit cards, you pay for something and you don't have to pay for it until the following month. Yeah. See, I never had this pain of payment thing because for me, it's all the same amount of painful. (laughs) Okay. So you just don't like spending money. (laughs) No. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, maybe it was because when everybody else had like pocket cash, maybe I, I didn't have as much. So it was a real thing. Like I remember counting out $25 and 25 cents. And like, if people went to a restaurant, like I might not be able to tip. Yeah. I had, do you remember the old bank books? Did you ever have an old oh, bank yeah. book? Oh yeah, that thing was great. I love yeah. the little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had that from like the age of eight and I knew how much money I had and I knew 
how much money would be gone. Um, even using a debit card, I mm-hmm. always knew what my balance was. I've never had uh, insufficient funds unless it was an error message. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I think when I talk about the pain of pavement, I'm, I'm, I guess, more talking to the people that maybe are in that category of not wanting to deal with their money mm-hmm. um, and spending frequently. It is, you know, more painful to to pay with physical cash than I guess your credit card. And one of the in, most interesting things I thought around that was as we get things like Apple Wallet mm-hmm. or the ability to pay on your cell phone becomes even less painful because of how often we look at our phones. That motion of pulling out your phone is so intuitive. Mm-hmm. It becomes, in a sense, for, for, for a lot of people, paying for something is so disassociated with the money actually leaving your bank account. Yeah. Well, I use my mobile wallet frequently. Every time I can. Every opportunity right. I can, I use my mobile wallet. And it pops up with a notification afterwards with exactly how much I spent. So I feel like that is different than the credit card and the debit card because you just take that receipt and you throw it away. Yeah. But you get a notification that's how much you spent. And is that a credit card that you're using on your mobile wallet? Yeah. I only use credit cards. I just use my checking account to pay my credit cards. Okay. So our last type of money disorder, psychological money issue is uh, relational money disorders. Mm-hmm. So these are typically financial dependence and financial incest. So the first type was financial infidelity, mm-hmm. which is lying about money to your partner. Mm-hmm. And the second type was financial enabling, giving money to others, whether or not you can afford it. So this yeah. typically happens with parents supporting their adult children. And it is defined also as it is uh, not in the best long-term interest for the individual you're giving money to. Yeah. So the first one, financial infidelity, I think can cause a ton of issues in relationships. Like I've, and I don't mean to stereotype women, but I have seen women hide purchases from their spouses. That being said, I've also seen it from the other side where men are taking cash out of the ATM and spending it on something that maybe hasn't been agreed upon in the family budget. Yeah, it's on both ends for sure. But I think that stems from a larger relationship problem. And we talked it's not ab- the only thing you're hiding. No, and we talked about you know relationships in a previous episode mm-hmm. around money. And actually, an, an example that came up when I was doing my research on financial infidelity was creating a separate bank account. And we, and we talked yeah. about that as something that couples sometimes do when they're looking at getting divorced. Yeah. What is interesting, not that I haven't firsthand experienced financial infidelity. I think I mentioned in a previous episode, my husband and I are very, very, very open about money. Mm-hmm. But in his previous relationship, there was actually a decent amount of financial infidelity from mm-hmm. his previous partner. And I think like we've, you know, we've worked through all that. And obviously there's a lot of trust that we've had. We've been together for nine years. Mm-hmm. But I almost maybe felt at the beginning like he was worried that you know this was going to happen again yeah there was money being moved into accounts for vacations without him and all that good stuff so we won't dive into that too much but you know seeing how it affected his perception of it was definitely very interesting yeah that's awful i feel like any time that came up for me it's such a huge 
it should be a red flag. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a red flag and like a turnoff too because being financially vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable, isn't that what makes a good relationship? Isn't that what makes you know if your partner is right for you? How terrible. No, I definitely, you know, felt for him and he got taken advantage of in the worst possible way when it comes mm-hmm. to money, but um we have worked through all of that and we Yay. are in a great financial position. So, if you're if you think, I guess you're spouse or a partner or boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever is mm-hmm. maybe hiding things from you I think it, like we've mentioned in our previous episodes it's definitely time to you know sit down or you know maybe work with a money counselor or a psychologist to understand mm-hmm. you know what is underlying that issue because as you mentioned it's probably not the only thing mm-hmm. now the last type of relational money disorder was around financial enabling and yeah. I think we actually see this a lot in our society with boomerang yeah. parents that really can't let go they fund their child's lifestyle well into adulthood and these adults just keep I guess taking from their parents and they want the lifestyle of their parents right when mm-hmm. they've graduated university and are making yeah. you know 40 or 50 thousand dollars a year I think like I've seen it in siblings as well you can see it with parents um, you can see it in a variety of situations where just one person feels entitled to a certain lifestyle without working for it. And the entitlement of kind of getting to to decide what that other person can do with their money. So Mm -hmm. I've seen it, you know, with siblings and parents, Mm -hmm. but I've also seen it when inheritances are Mm -hmm. on the table where, you know, there's multiple adult children Mm -hmm. and, obviously it's very sad that the parents die or whatever and you know one of the siblings is maybe making more money than the other siblings Mm -hmm. and you know when it comes to like family get-togethers or whatever they're now just assuming that the the sibling with the the highest income should you know take on all the costs yeah yeah foot the bill for everything um and then when it comes to inheritance too unfortunately it, it causes so much turmoil in families and long lasting rifts for sure i mean i've seen them in my own family mm-hmm. i've seen them in you know my husband's family i've seen them you know money is a source of angst in a lot of families and it's mm-hmm. too bad that it's a source of you know argument but yeah or feeling like for whatever reason that whether the person be your parent or your kid or your sibling or your cousin or whoever that you somehow deserve what they have just because they earn more or seem to earn more. Or you don't think they work as hard or Yeah, or you don't think they work as hard or you don't think they have problems. Whatever the justification might be, it's not, it's never justified. No, you're definitely not entitled to anyone else's money. Mm -hmm. And going back to the the parent-child relationship, you know, millennials are labeled as entitled, which I definitely don't agree with, but I see some hard ass working millennials. Mm-hmm. But I think there are some as as there probably was with any generation that are maybe they have that head in the sand mindset when it comes to money and so they just expect their parents to foot the bill for things. Yeah, well, and I think it's hard too because the costs have increased for so sure. expo- exponentially without the wage increase too. So in order to have the same education 
um, that our parents did or end up in the same career that our parents did, we're spending a lot more to get there. We're not in the same position. And I think there can be a lot of judgment behind that as well. And then a lot of parents kind of wanting to cover that up for their kid. And I think there's nothing, again, you can't tell people how to spend their money. So there's nothing wrong with Mm -hmm. if a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, whatever, wants to give money to someone. I think that's totally fair and that's their prerogative. But I I think the the underlying issue is when it's at the expense of that person. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, I hope one day I can pay for my child's education, but it can't be at the expense of my retirement. I can't be living in poverty when I retire. Yeah, and so that's not going to help your kid either because who do you think is going to support you? Absolutely. And I think that's where people need to maybe open their eyes a little bit more and it's so hard because as a parent I'm sure I'm not a parent but I'm sure you want to do absolutely everything for your for your child and give them the best mm-hmm. possible start to the world and the best possible life but if you're a child and your your parent is con- consistently you know giving you money and you haven't sat down and kind of understood their financial position mm-hmm. it might be time to do that so that you can as hard as it is say like no mm-hmm. you know this is not good for yeah. Me long term because I'm not learning how to live within my means, but yeah. also it's not good for your financial situation either. Yeah, there's the onus on the recipient of the kindness, generosity, funds, wherever it's coming from, um, to either, I don't know, come up with a system of reciprocity or say no. And it's hard to say no. I mean, yeah. I've had to say no to yeah. things where. Um, my family has been very fortunate that we're in the financial position that we're in, and I definitely mm-hmm. acknowledge my privilege there. But there's been times where I've said no because, you know, we can afford certain things, so it makes sense that we would pay for them. Mm-hmm. And exactly, I'd like to think that that's a maturity thing. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. No, I th- I think it is because there's a difference between a gift, and then there's sort of a reciprocal relationship if you're gift giving with others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's something to say, even if it's not at the detriment of the other person's financial well-being, that that's an unnecessary gift. It's overstepping exactly. a line. It's in some way, shape, or form become inappropriate, which is maybe not the language you'd want to use, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. So we've talked about six different money disorders. I'm hoping some of our listeners maybe either kind of line up with some of those and have their eyes opened a little bit, or maybe they you know, are going to have a tough financial conversation with someone in their life. But I did want to spend a little bit of time here talking about how to actually develop a, a more positive relationship with money, because mm-hmm. I think for so many people, it is such a negative thing. And, and I hate yeah. that because for me, having the education I've had and the ability to build wealth, it has been such a positive thing. And not that's mm-hmm. not to say there hasn't been ups and downs, right? Mm-hmm. But I would, I would want that for everyone. Um, yeah. So I was looking up this notion of developing like a, a rich money mindset. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, moving that from scarcity to an abundance mindset, trying to figure out the link between your self-worth and personal finances. So understanding, of course, that, you know, money does not define you. Mm-hmm. How much money you have doesn't define your self-worth. And really understand buyer's remorse. So why Mm. people feel remorseful for things is usually because they know that it's something that maybe doesn't add value to their life or that money could have been better spent. So I'm Mm -hmm. curious as to what your experience with buyer's remorse has been. Oh, wow. 
The last time I had buyer's remorse, it's probably been a solid decade where I've purchased something that I don't really need or that doesn't create value in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, and understanding what creates value is super important, and I think people maybe don't spend the time to understand what purchases do create value. Mm -hmm. I think for me, when I was younger, I feel like there were times when I would buy things from a store, like clothing, Mm -hmm. that I would feel buyer's remorse over. So I'd either go, like, return it or... Oh, yeah. And, like, I've returned things, definitely. But was Um, it ever because you felt guilty that you bought it? Because that's really No, I just didn't need it. For sure. Well, and I think it's a self-awareness piece, too, to, like, prevent buyer's remorse. I've never been an impulse buyer. Um, I definitely have, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of money on my kid, but I just have all these lists of things that everybody needs. And so it's always something off the list. For sure. And I think that can be a great way of ensuring there's delayed gratification mm-hmm. and that it's something that you actually need. I know I've created lists upon lists of things that I've wanted to purchase. And mm-hmm. when I have, let's say, saved up enough in a few months for a purchase, mm-hmm. I look back at my list and I'm like, oh, do I really want to spend that, you know, a couple hundred dollars on that? Or maybe it was a thousand dollars or whatever. Yeah. And you kind of, when you take that step back and have that different perspective, I think you kind of have a different viewpoint of the yeah. item. It's a hu- Yeah, it's a huge piece of self-awareness, though. You have to know what's going to make you happy and realize that it's not the act of spending money that'll make you happy and it's not the number of items you have or what someone will think of them. Absolutely. And moving on from that, once you've kind of defined this you know, self-worth and this understanding of your values and buyer's remorse, what I found was understanding financial stress and the difference between big financial stress and small financial stress. So sometimes mm-hmm. I've you know gotten stressed about money even recently and I think it's important to remind yourself what's a big financial stress and what's a small financial stress like if it's, you know, a timing difference between when transfers yeah. are happening or when expenses are being reimbursed that's a small money stress whereas if you have big money stresses in your life, you may need to make actual changes to your lifestyle and from a perspective of, you know, either cutting back or getting a side hustle or negotiating a raise. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, from your standpoint, you mentioned that when you were growing up, you had financial stress in your Mm -hmm. household, but on a day-to-day basis, do you think that you still have a little bit of, maybe not day-to-day, month-to-month, some small money stress in your life? No, I'm very lucky to say that I do not at all. Look at you. Well, hopefully all <laughs> But how about you? Because you said that you have stresses. I think I just get maybe, well, like I told you, I like calculate my net worth like on a monthly basis. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes it's maybe over involvement in things or mm-hmm. wanting like my net worth or my savings to be at a certain point that mm-hmm. might be slightly unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And it's just me pushing my type A personality being like, well, no, we can do this if we just like put our minds to it. And again, I'm super lucky and fortunate that we are in the position where we can handle all of our expenses. Like I'm not stressed about paying the mortgage or I'm not stressed mm-hmm. about not being able to afford food. It's mm-hmm. like, I wish our emergency fund was at this balance next month type of a yeah. thing. So again, a slight, probably hoarding tendency on, on my yeah. part. We are lucky to live in a country where there are public safety nets, for one, when you really have the rug pulled out from under you. Lucky to have the people 
that I have in my life that I can rely on. And so now my perspective is, even if things were to drastically change, and I've told my husband this too, even if we have to sell the house, I have you. Um, That's worth more to me. I've lived in a one bedroom. I've lived in a no bedroom apartment. No doors to Um, slam. No doors to slam. There was a bathroom door though. So there's that. And yeah, money comes and goes. There's more important things. And as long as you're realistic about what your base is and your expenses and everything like that, I think you just have to realize you'll be just fine. And I think that really perfectly actually ties into my last point, which is understanding, you know, your relationships and love and whether that's marriage or not, but how that ties into gratitude. And I think that that's such a huge mindset shift for people is like, what can you be grateful for that money Mm. has been able to do for you? Has Mm. it allowed you to go back to school? Has it allowed you to take time off with your child and really focusing on, I guess, not how much money you amass. And I mean, this Mm. is definitely like something that I continually try and work on, but what can, what can we be grateful for? And you know, what has money been able to do for you and what freedoms kind of has it afforded you? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that that can be a powerful way to start to shift your thinking. Obviously, you know, Tara and I will always be the first people to tell you to save and invest, but, you know, having a good relationship with your finances, I think is something that is so important so that you aren't, you know, kept awake at night because Mm -hmm. you can't pay your credit card bills. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if there's any like parents out there, like having been a child who grew up in financial instability, your kids don't know like just from somebody who has had that perspective, your kids don't know about it. They don't look at it the same way you do. They don't realize that it's macaroni and cheese with chopped up hot dogs every night. Um, That sounds delicious. It does until it's your only option. Fair enough, yeah. (laughs) Your kids don't see it the same way you do. So if you are struggling financially, know that it's not affecting your children the way you think it is. And if you are feeling like you're in a place where you are completely overwhelmed, definitely, you know, reach out to people you love, reach out to financial and, you know, psychological experts. Um, There is always, you know, other options and help available to you. So definitely Mm -hmm. don't feel like you're completely alone. People have been through the same things that you have been through and, I guess, practice gratitude Mm -hmm. as much as you possibly can. So the pink tax rebate for (laughs) this week is really going to be around a self-awareness check. One of the most interesting questions Tara and I were talking about before this podcast was asking yourself what your first money memory was and trying to understand where that money mindset has kind of stemmed from in your life. In addition to that, take some time this week to understand what your money narrative is, how you talk to yourself about money, and what your money tendencies are. And make sure that you know, you're implementing things and people in your life that are allowing you to, I guess, have the best relationship with your money. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. As always, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to share your money story using the hashtag FemFinances.